Chapter One Hundred and Six of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One Hundred and Six. Dividing the proceeds. The apartment on the second floor of the house in the Rue Saint Germain de Pre, where Albert de Morcerf had selected a home for his mother, was let to a very mysterious person. This was a man whose face the concierge himself had never seen, for in the winter his chin was buried in one of the large red handkerchiefs worn by gentlemen's coachmen on a cold night, and in the summer he made a point of always blowing his nose just as he approached the door. Contrary to custom, this gentleman had not been watched, for as the report ran that he was a person of high rank, and one who would allow no impertinent interference, his incognito was strictly respected. His visits were tolerably regular, though occasionally he appeared a little before or after his time, but generally, both in summer and winter, he took possession of his apartment about four o'clock, though he never spent the night there. At half-past three in the winter, the fire was lighted by the discreet servant, who had the superintendence of the little apartment, and in the summer ices were placed on the table at the same hour. At four o'clock, as we have already stated, the mysterious personage arrived. Twenty minutes afterwards, a carriage stopped at the house. A lady alighted in a black or dark blue dress, and always thickly veiled. She passed like a shadow through the lodge, and ran upstairs without a sound escaping under the touch of her light foot. No one ever asked her where she was going. Her face, therefore, like that of the gentleman, was perfectly unknown to the two concierges who were perhaps unequal throughout the capital for discretion. We need not say she stopped at the second floor. Then she tapped in a peculiar manner at a door, which after being opened to admit her was again fastened, and curiosity penetrated no farther. They used the same precautions in leaving as in entering the house. The lady always left first, and as soon as she had stepped into her carriage it drove away, sometimes towards the right hand, sometimes to the left. Then about twenty minutes afterwards the gentleman would also leave, buried in his cravat or concealed by his handkerchief. The day after Monte Cristo had called upon Donglars, the mysterious lodger entered at ten o'clock in the morning instead of four in the afternoon. Almost directly afterwards, without the usual interval of time, a cab arrived, and the veiled lady ran hastily upstairs. The door opened, but before it could be closed, the lady exclaimed, "'Oh, Lucien! Oh, my friend!' The concierge, therefore, heard for the first time that the lodger's name was Lucien. Still, as he was the very perfection of a doorkeeper, he made up his mind not to tell his wife. "'Well, what is the matter, my dear?' asked the gentleman, whose name the lady's agitation revealed. "'Tell me, what is the matter?' "'Oh, Lucien, can I confide in you?' of course you know you can do so but what can be the matter your note of this morning has completely bewildered me this precipitation this unusual appointment come ease me of my anxiety or else frighten me at once lucien a great event has happened said the lady glancing inquiringly at lucien monsieur danglars left last night left monsieur danglars left where has he gone I do not know. What do you mean? Has he gone intending not to return? 
undoubtedly at ten o'clock at night his horses took him to the barrier of charenton there a post-chaise was waiting for him he entered it with his valet de chambre saying that he was going to fontainebleau then what did you mean stay he left a letter for me a letter yes read it and the baroness took from her pocket a letter which she gave to dubray dubray paused a moment before reading as if trying to guess its contents or perhaps while making up his mind how to act whatever it might contain no doubt his ideas were arranged in a few minutes for he began reading the letter which caused so much uneasiness in the heart of the baroness and which ran as follows madame and most faithful wife de bray mechanically stopped and looked at the baroness whose face became covered with blushes read she said de bray continued when you receive this you will no longer have a husband oh you need not be alarmed you will only have lost him as you have lost your daughter i mean that i shall be travelling on one of the thirty or forty roads leading out of france i owe you some explanations for my conduct and as you are a woman that can perfectly understand me i will give them listen i received this morning five million which i paid away almost directly afterwards another demand for the same sum was presented to me i put this creditor off till tomorrow and i intend leaving today to escape that tomorrow which would be rather too unpleasant for me to endure you understand this do you not my most precious wife i say you understand this because you are as conversant with my affairs as i am indeed i think you understand them better since i am ignorant of what has become of a considerable portion of my fortune once very tolerable while i am sure madame that you know perfectly well for women have infallible instincts they can even explain the marvellous by an algebraic calculation they have invented but i who only understand my own figures know nothing more than that one day these figures deceive me have you admired the rapidity of my fall have you been slightly dazzled at the sudden fusion of my ingots i confess i have seen nothing but the fire let us hope you have found some gold among the ashes with this consoling idea i leave you madame and most prudent wife without any conscientious reproach for abandoning you you have friends left and the ashes i have already mentioned and above all the liberty i hasten to restore to you and here madame i must add another word of explanation so long as i hoped you were working for the good of our house and for the fortune of our daughter i philosophically closed my eyes but as you have transformed that house into a vast ruin i will not be the foundation of another man's fortune you were rich when i married you but little respected excuse me for speaking so very candidly but as this is intended only for ourselves i do not see why i should weigh my words i have augmented our fortune and it has continued to increase during the last fifteen years till extraordinary and unexpected catastrophes have suddenly overturned it without any fault of mine i can honestly declare you madame have only sought to increase your own and i am convinced that you have succeeded i leave you therefore as i took you rich but little respected adieu i also intend from this time to work on my own account 
accept my acknowledgments for the example you have set me, and which I intend following. Your very devoted husband, Baron Danglars. The Baroness had watched Debray while he read this long and painful letter, and saw him notwithstanding his self-control change colour once or twice. When he had ended the perusal, he folded the letter and resumed his pensive attitude. Well? asked Madame Danglars, with an anxiety easy to be understood. Well, madame, unhesitatingly repeated Debray, with what ideas does that letter inspire you? Oh, it is simple enough, madame. It inspires me with the idea that Monsieur Danglars has left suspiciously. Certainly. But is this all you have to say to me? I do not understand you, said Debray, with freezing coldness. He is gone, never to return. Oh, madame, do not think that. I tell you, he will never return. I know his character. He is inflexible in any resolutions formed for his own interests. If he could have made any use of me, he would have taken me with him. He leaves me in Paris, as our separation will conduce to his benefit. Therefore, he has gone, and I am free forever, added Madame Danglars in the same supplicating tone. De Bray, instead of answering, allowed her to remain in an attitude of nervous inquiry. Well, she said at length, do you not answer me? I have but one question to ask you. What do you intend to do? I was going to ask you, replied the baroness with a beating heart. Ah, then, you wish to ask advice of me? Yes, I do wish to ask your advice, said Madame Danglars with anxious expectation. Then if you wish to take my advice, said the young man coldly, I would recommend you to travel. To travel? she murmured. Certainly. As Monsieur Danglars says, you are rich and perfectly free. In my opinion, a withdrawal from Paris is absolutely necessary after the double catastrophe of Mademoiselle Danglars' broken contract and Monsieur Danglars' disappearance. The world will think you abandoned and poor, for the wife of a bankrupt would never be forgiven were she to keep up an appearance of opulence. You have only to remain in Paris for about a fortnight, telling the world you are abandoned, and relating the details of this desertion to your best friends, who will soon spread the report. Then you can quit your house, leaving your jewels and giving up your jointure, and everyone's mouth will be filled with praises of your disinterestedness. They will know you are deserted, and think you also poor, for I alone know your real financial position, and am quite ready to give up my accounts as an honest partner. The dread with which the pale and motionless baroness listened to this was equalled by the calm indifference with which de Bray had spoken. Deserted? she repeated. Ah, oh, yes, I am indeed deserted. You are right, sir, and no one can doubt my position. These were the only words that this proud and violently enamoured woman could utter in response to de Bray. But then you are rich, very rich indeed, continued de Bray, taking out some papers from his pocket-book which he spread upon the table. Madame Danglars did not see them. She was engaged in stilling the beatings of her heart and restraining the tears which were ready to gush forth. 
at length a sense of dignity prevailed and if she did not entirely master her agitation she at least succeeded in preventing the fall of a single tear madame said debray it is nearly six months since we have been associated you furnished a principal of one hundred thousand francs our partnership began in the month of april in may we commenced operations and in the course of the month gained four hundred and fifty thousand francs in june the profit amounted to nine hundred thousand in july we added one million seven hundred thousand francs it was you know the month of the spanish bonds in august we lost three hundred thousand francs at the beginning of the month but on the thirteenth we made up for it and we now find that our accounts reckoning from the first day of partnership up to yesterday when i closed them showed a capital of two million four hundred thousand francs that is one million two hundred thousand for each of us now madame said debray delivering up his accounts in the methodical manner of a stockbroker there are still eighty thousand francs the interest of this money in my hands but said the baroness i thought you never put the money out to interest excuse me madame said debray coldly i had your permission to do so and i have made use of it there are then forty thousand francs for your share besides the one hundred thousand you furnished me to begin with making in all one million three hundred forty thousand francs for your portion now madame i took the precaution of drawing out your money the day before yesterday it is not long ago you see and i was in continual expectation of being called on to deliver up my accounts there is your money half in banknotes the other half in cheques payable to bearer i say there for as i did not consider my house safe enough or lawyers sufficiently discreet and as landed property carries evidence with it and moreover since you have no right to possess anything independent of your husband i have kept this sum now your whole fortune in a chest concealed under that closet and for greater security i myself concealed it there now madame continued debray first opening the closet then the chest now madame here are eight hundred notes of one thousand francs each resembling as you see a large book bound in iron to this i had a certificate in the funds of twenty five thousand francs then for the odd cash making i think about one hundred and ten thousand francs here is a check upon my banker who not being monsieur danglars will pay you the amount you may rest assured madame danglars mechanically took the check the bond and the heap of banknotes this enormous fortune made no great appearance on the table madame danglars with tearless eyes but with her breast heaving with concealed emotion placed the banknotes in her bag put the certificate and check into her pocket-book and then standing pale and mute awaited one kind word of consolation but she waited in vain now madame said debray you have a splendid fortune an income of about sixty thousand livres a year which is enormous for a woman who cannot keep an establishment here for a year at least you will be able to indulge all your fancies besides should you find your income insufficient you can for the sake of the past madame make use of mine and i am ready to offer you all i possess on loan 
"'Thank you, sir. Thank you,' replied the baroness. "'You forget that what you have just paid me is much more than a poor woman requires, who intends for some time, at least, to retire from the world.' Debray was for a moment surprised, but immediately recovering himself, he bowed with an air which seemed to say, "'As you please, madame.' Madame Danglars had until then, perhaps, hoped for something. But when she saw the careless bow of Debray, and the glance by which it was accompanied, together with his significant silence, she raised her head, and without passion or violence, or even hesitation, ran downstairs, disdaining to address a last farewell to one who could thus part from her. Bah! said Debray, when she had left. These are fine projects. She will remain at home, read novels and speculate at cards, since she can no longer do so on the bourse. Then taking up his account-book, he cancelled with the greatest care all the entries of the amounts he had just paid away. "'I have one million and sixty thousand francs remaining,' he said. "'What a pity Mademoiselle de Villefort is dead. She suited me in every respect, and I would have married her.' and he calmly waited until the twenty minutes had elapsed after madame danglars departure before he left the house during this time he occupied himself in making figures with his watch by his side asmodeus that diabolical personage who would have been created by every fertile imagination if lesage had not acquired the priority in his great masterpiece would have enjoyed a singular spectacle if he had lifted up the roof of the little house in the rue Saint-Germain-des-Prés, while Debray was casting up his figures. Above the room in which Debray had been dividing two million and a half with Madame Danglars was another, inhabited by persons who have played too prominent a part in the incidents we have related for their appearance not to create some interest. Mercedes and Albert were in that room. Mercedes was much changed within the last few days, not that even in her days of fortune she had ever dressed with the magnificent display which makes us no longer able to recognize a woman when she appears in a plain and simple attire, nor indeed had she fallen into that state of depression where it is impossible to conceal the garb of misery. No, the change in Mercedes was that her eye no longer sparkled, her lips no longer smiled, and there was now a hesitation in uttering the words which formerly sprang so fluently from her ready wit. It was not poverty which had broken her spirit. It was not a want of courage which rendered her poverty burdensome. Mercedes, although deposed from the exalted position she had occupied, lost in the sphere she had now chosen, like a person passing from a room splendidly lighted into utter darkness, appeared like a queen fallen from her palace to a hovel, and who, reduced to strict necessity, could neither become reconciled to the earthen vessels she was herself forced to place upon the table, nor to the humble pallet which had become her bed. The beautiful Catalan and noble countess had lost both her proud glance and charming smile, because she saw nothing but misery around her. The walls were hung with one of the grey papers which economical landlords choose as not likely to show the dirt. The floor was uncarpeted. The furniture attracted the attention to the poor attempt at luxury. Indeed, 
everything offended eyes accustomed to refinement and elegance madame de morcerf had lived there since leaving her house the continual silence of the spot oppressed her still seeing that albert continually watched her countenance to judge the state of her feelings she constrained herself to assume a monotonous smile of the lips alone which contrasted with the sweet and beaming expression that usually shone from her eyes seemed like moonlight on a statue yielding light without warmth albert too was ill at ease the remains of luxury prevented him from sinking into his actual position if he wished to go out without gloves his hands appeared too white if he wished to walk through the town his boots seemed too highly polished yet these two noble and intelligent creatures united by the indissoluble ties of maternal and filial love had succeeded in tacitly understanding one another and economizing their stores and albert had been able to tell his mother without extorting a change of countenance mother we have no more money mercedes had never known misery she had often in her youth spoken of poverty but between want and necessity these synonymous words there is a wide difference amongst the catalans mercedes wished for a thousand things but still she never really wanted any so long as the nets were good they caught fish and so long as they sold their fish they were able to buy twine for new nets and then shut out from friendship having but one affection which could not be mixed up with her ordinary pursuits she thought of herself of no one but herself upon the little she earned she lived as well as she could now there were two to be supported and nothing to live upon winter approached mercedes had no fire in that cold and naked room she who was accustomed to stoves which heated the house from the hall to the boudoir she had not even one little flower she whose apartment had been a conservatory of costly exotics but she had her son hitherto the excitement of fulfilling a duty had sustained them excitement like enthusiasm sometimes renders us unconscious to the things of earth but the excitement had calmed down and they felt themselves obliged to descend from dreams to reality after having exhausted the ideal they found they must talk of the actual mother exclaimed albert just as madame d'anglars was descending the stairs let us reckon our riches if you please i want capital to build my plans upon capital nothing replied mercedes with a mournful smile no mother capital three thousand francs and i have an idea of our leading delightful life upon this three thousand francs child sighed mercedes alas dear mother said the young man i have unhappily spent too much of your money not to know the value of it these three thousand francs are enormous and i intend building upon this foundation a miraculous certainty for the future you say this my dear boy but do you think we ought to accept these three thousand francs said mercedes coloring i think so answered albert in a firm tone we will accept them the more readily since we have them not here you know they are buried in the garden of the little house in the allee de Mayen at marseilles with two hundred francs we can reach marseilles 
with two hundred francs are you sure out there oh as for that i have made inquiries respecting the diligences and steamboats and my calculations are made you will take your place in the coupe to chalon you see mother i treat you handsomely for thirty-five francs albert then took a pen and wrote coupe thirty-five francs from chalon to lyon you will go on by the steamboat six francs from lyon to avignon still by steamboat sixteen francs from avignon to marseille seven francs expenses on the road about fifty francs total one hundred and fourteen francs let us put down one hundred and twenty added albert smiling you see i am generous am i not mother but you my poor child i do you not see that i reserve eighty francs for myself a young man does not require luxuries besides i know what travelling is with a post-chaise and valet de chambre anyway mother well be it so but these uh, two hundred francs here they are and two hundred more besides see i have sold my watch for one hundred francs and the guard and seals for three hundred how fortunate that the ornaments were worth more than the watch still the same story of superfluities now i think we are rich since instead of the one hundred and fourteen francs we require for the journey we find ourselves in possession of two hundred and fifty but we owe something in this house thirty francs but i pay that out of my one hundred and fifty francs that is understood and as i require only eighty francs for my journey you see i am overwhelmed with luxury but that is not all what do you say to this mother and albert took out of a little pocket-book with golden clasps a remnant of his old fancies or perhaps a tender souvenir from one of the mysterious and veiled ladies who used to knock at his little door albert took out of his pocket-book a note of one thousand francs what is this asked mercedes a thousand francs but whence have you obtained them listen to me mother and do not yield too much to agitation and albert rising kissed his mother on both cheeks then stood looking at her you cannot imagine mother how beautiful i think you said the young man impressed with a profound feeling of filial love you are indeed the most beautiful and most noble woman i ever saw dear child said mercedes endeavouring in vain to restrain a tear which glistened in the corner of her eye indeed you only wanted misfortune to change my love for you to admiration i am not unhappy while i possess my son ah just so said albert here begins the trial do you know the decision we have come to mother have we come to any yes it is decided that you are to live at marseilles and that i am to leave for africa where i will earn for myself the right to use the name i now bear instead of the one i have thrown aside mercedes sighed well mother i yesterday engaged myself as substitute in the spice added the young man lowering his eyes with a certain feeling of shame for even he was unconscious of the sublimity of his self-abasement i thought my body was my own 
and that I might sell it. I yesterday took the place of another. I sold myself for more than I thought I was worth, he added, attempting to smile. I fetched two thousand francs. Then these one thousand francs, said Mercedes, shuddering, are the half of the sum, mother. The other will be paid in a year. Mercedes raised her eyes to heaven with an expression it would be impossible to describe, and tears, which had hitherto been restrained, now yielded to her emotion and ran down her cheeks. The price of his blood, she murmured. Yes, if I am killed, said Albert, laughing. But I assure you, mother, I have a strong intention of defending my person, and I never felt half so strong as inclination to live as I do now. Merciful heavens! Besides, mother, why should you make up your mind that I am to be killed? Has La Moretiere, that nay of the south, been killed? Has Chongarnier been killed? Has Bedeau been killed? Has Morel, whom we know, been killed? Think of your joy, mother, when you see me return with an embroidered uniform. I declare, I expect to look magnificent in it, and chose that regiment only from vanity. Mercedes sighed while endeavouring to smile. The devoted mother felt that she ought not to allow the whole weight of the sacrifice to fall upon her son. "'Well, now you understand, mother,' continued Albert. "'Here are more than four thousand francs settled on you. Upon these you can live at least two years.' "'Do you think so?' said Mercedes. These words were uttered in so mournful a tone that their real meaning did not escape Albert. He felt his heart beat, and taking his mother's hand within his own, he said tenderly, "'Yes, you will live.' "'I shall live? Then you will not leave me, Albert.' "'Mother, I must go,' said Albert in a firm, calm voice. You love me too well to wish me to remain useless and idle with you. Besides, I have signed. You will obey your own wish and the will of heaven. Not my own wish, mother, but reason, necessity. Are we not two despairing creatures? What is life to you? Nothing. What is life to me? Very little without you. Mother, for believe me, but for you I should have ceased to live on the day I doubted my father and renounced his name. Well, I will live, if you promise me to still hope and if you grant me the care of your future prospects. You will redouble my strength. Then I will go to the governor of Algeria. He has a royal heart and is essentially a soldier. I will tell him my gloomy story. I will beg him to turn his eyes now and then towards me, and if he keeps his word and interest himself for me, in six months I shall be an officer, or dead. If I am an officer, your fortune is certain, for I shall have money enough for both, and, moreover, a name we shall both be proud of, since it will be our own. If I am killed, well then, mother, you can also die." and there will be an end of our misfortunes. It is well, replied Mercedes, with her eloquent glance. You are right, my love. 
let us prove to those who are watching our actions that we are worthy of compassion but let us not yield to gloomy apprehensions said the young man i assure you we are or rather we shall be very happy you are a woman at once full of spirit and resignation i have become simple in my tastes and am without passion i hope once in service i shall be rich once in monsieur dante's house you will be at rest let us strive i beseech you let us strive to be cheerful yes let us strive for you are to live and to be happy albert and so our division is made mother said the young man affecting ease of mind we can now part come i shall engage your passage and you my dear boy i shall stay here for a few days longer we must accustom ourselves to parting i want recommendations and some information relative to africa i will join you again at marseilles well be it so let us part said mercedes folding around her shoulders the only shawl she had taken away and which accidentally happened to be a valuable black cashmere albert gathered up his papers hastily rang the bell to pay the thirty francs he owed to the landlord and offering his arm to his mother they descended the stairs someone was walking down before them and this person hearing the rustling of a silk dress turned around de Bray, muttered albert you morcerf replied the secretary resting on the stairs curiosity had vanquished the desire of preserving his incognito and he was recognized it was indeed strange in this unknown spot to find the young man whose misfortunes had made so much noise in paris morcerf repeated debray then noticing in the dim light the still youthful and veiled figure of madame de morcerf pardon me he added with a smile i leave you albert albert understood his thoughts mother he said turning towards mercedes this is monsieur debray secretary of the minister for the interior once a friend of mine how once stammered debray what what do you mean i say so monsieur debray because i have no friends now and i ought not to have any i thank you for having recognized me sir debray stepped forward and cordially pressed the hand of his interlocutor believe me dear albert he said with all the emotion he was capable of feeling believe me i feel deeply for your misfortunes and if in any way i can serve you i am yours thank you sir said albert smiling in the midst of our misfortunes we are still rich enough not to require assistance from anyone we are leaving paris and when our journey is paid we shall have five thousand francs left the blood mounted to the temples of debray who held a million in his pocket-book and unimaginative as he was he could not help reflecting that the same house had contained two women one of whom justly dishonored had left it poor with one million five hundred thousand francs under her cloak while the other unjustly stricken but sublime in her misfortune was yet rich with a few deniers this parallel disturbed his usual politeness 
the philosophy he witnessed appalled him he muttered a few words of general civility and ran down the stairs that day the minister's clerks and the subordinates had a great deal to put up with from his ill humor but that same night he found himself the possessor of a fine house situated on the boulevard de la madeleine and an income of fifty thousand livres the next day just as debray was signing the deed that is about five o'clock in the afternoon madame de morcerf after having affectionately embraced her son entered the coupe of the diligence which closed upon her a man was hidden in lafitte's banking-house behind one of the little arched windows which are placed above each desk he saw mercedes enter the diligence and he also saw albert withdraw then he passed his hand across his forehead which was clouded with doubt alas he exclaimed how can i restore the happiness i have taken away from these poor innocent creatures god help me End of chapter 106chapter 107 of the count of monte cristo by alexandre dumas this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 107 the lion's den one division of la force in which the most dangerous and desperate prisoners are confined is called the court of saint bernard the prisoners in their expressive language have named it the lion's den probably because the captives possess teeth which frequently gnaw the bars and sometimes the keepers also it is a prison within a prison the walls are double the thickness of the rest the gratings are every day carefully examined by jailers whose herculean proportions and cold pitiless expression prove them to have been chosen to reign over their subjects for their superior activity and intelligence the courtyard of this quarter is enclosed by enormous walls over which the sun glances obliquely when it deigns to penetrate into this gulf of moral and physical deformity on this paved yard are to be seen pacing to and fro from morning till night pale careworn and haggard like so many shadows the men whom justice holds beneath the steel she is sharpening there crouched against the side of the wall which attracts and retains the most heat they may be seen sometimes talking to one another but more frequently alone watching the door which sometimes opens to call forth one from the gloomy assemblage or to throw in another outcast from society the court of saint bernard has its own particular apartment for the reception of guests it is a long rectangle divided by two upright gratings placed at a distance of three feet from one another to prevent a visitor from shaking hands with or passing anything to the prisoners it is a wretched damp nay even horrible spot more especially when we consider the agonizing conferences which have taken place between those iron bars and yet frightful though this spot may be it is looked upon as a kind of paradise by the men whose days are numbered it is so rare for them to leave the lion's den for any other place than the barrier saint jacques or the galleys in the court which we have attempted to describe and from which a damp vapor was rising 
a young man with his hands in his pockets who had excited much curiosity among the inhabitants of the den might be seen walking the cut of his clothes would have made him pass for an elegant man if those clothes had not been torn to shreds still they did not show signs of wear and the fine cloth beneath the careful hands of the prisoner soon recovered its gloss in the parts which were still perfect for the wearer tried his best to make it assume the appearance of a new coat he bestowed the same attention upon the cambric front of a shirt which had considerably changed in color since his entrance into the prison and he polished his varnished boots with the corner of a handkerchief embroidered with initials surmounted by a coronet some of the inmates of the lion's den were watching the operations of the prisoner's toilet with considerable interest see the prince is pluming himself said one of the thieves he's a fine-looking fellow said another if he had only a comb and hair grease he'd take the shine off the gentleman in white kids his coat looks almost new and his boots shine like a nigger's face it's pleasant to have such well-dressed comrades but didn't those gendarmes behave shamefully must have been jealous to tear such clothes he looks like a big bug said another dresses in fine style and then to be here so young oh what larks meanwhile the object of this hideous admiration approached the wicket against which one of the keepers was leaning come sir he said lend me twenty francs you will soon be paid you run no risks with me remember i have relations who possess more millions than you have deniers come i beseech you lend me twenty francs so that i may buy a dressing-gown it is intolerable always to be in a coat and boots and what a coat sir for a prince of the cavalcanti the keeper turned his back and shrugged his shoulders he did not even laugh at what would have caused anyone else to do so he'd heard so many utter the same things indeed he heard nothing else come said andrea you are a man void of compassion i'll have you turned out this made the keeper turn round and he burst into a loud laugh the prisoners then approached and formed a circle i tell you with that wretched sum continued andrea i could obtain a coat and a room in which to receive the illustrious visitor i am daily expecting of course of course said the prisoners anyone can see he's a gentleman well then lend him the twenty francs said the keeper leaning on the other shoulder surely you will not refuse a comrade i am no comrade of these people said the young man proudly you have no right to insult me thus the thieves looked at one another with low murmurs and a storm gathered over the head of the aristocratic prisoner raised less by his own words than by the manner of the keeper the latter sure of quelling the tempest when the waves became too violent allowed them to rise to a certain pitch that he might be revenged on the importunate andrea and besides it would afford him some recreation during the long day the thieves had already approached andrea some screaming la savate la savate a cruel operation which consists in cuffing a comrade who may have fallen into disgrace not with an old shoe but with an iron-heeled one others proposed the anguille another kind of recreation in which a handkerchief is filled with sand pebbles and two sous pieces when they have them 
which the wretches beat like a flail over the head and shoulders of the unhappy sufferer. "'Let us horsewhip the fine gentleman,' said others. But Andrea, turning towards them, winked his eyes, rolled his tongue around his cheeks, and smacked his lips, in a manner equivalent to a hundred words among the bandits when forced to be silent. It was a Masonic sign Caderousse had taught him. He was immediately recognized as one of them. The handkerchief was thrown down, and the iron-heeled shoe replaced on the foot of the wretch to whom it belonged. Some voices were heard to say that the gentleman was right, that he intended to be civil in his way, and that they would set the example of liberty of conscience, and the mob retired. The keeper was so stupefied at this scene that he took Andrea by the hands and began examining his person, attributing the sudden submission of the inmates of the lion's den to something more substantial than mere fascination. Andrea made no resistance, although he protested against it. Suddenly a voice was heard at the wicket. Benedetto! exclaimed an inspector the keeper relaxed his hold i am called said andrea to the visitors room said the same voice you see someone pays me a visit ah my dear sir you will see whether a cavalcanti is to be treated like a common person and andrea gliding through the court like a black shadow rushed out through the wicket leaving his comrades and even the keeper lost in wonder Certainly a call to the visitor's room had scarcely astonished Andrea less than themselves, for the wily youth, instead of making use of his privilege of waiting to be claimed on his entry into La Force, had maintained a rigid silence. Everything, he said, proves me to be under the protection of some powerful person. This sudden fortune, the facility with which I have overcome all obstacles, an unexpected family and an illustrious name awarded to me, gold showered down upon me and the most splendid alliances about to be entered into an unhappy lapse of fortune and the absence of my protector have cast me down certainly but not for ever the hand which has retreated for a while will be again stretched forth to save me at the very moment when i shall think myself sinking into the abyss why should i risk an imprudent step it might alienate my protector he has two means of extricating me from this dilemma the one by a mysterious escape managed through bribery the other by buying off my judges with gold i will say and do nothing until i am convinced that he has quite abandoned me and then andrea had formed a plan which was tolerably clever the unfortunate youth was intrepid in the attack and rude in the defence he had borne with the public prison and with privations of all sorts still by degrees nature or rather custom had prevailed and he suffered from being naked dirty and hungry it was at this moment of discomfort that the inspector's voice called him to the visitor's room andrea felt his heart leap with joy it was too soon for a visit from the examining magistrate and too late for one from the director of the prison or the doctor it must then be the visitor he hoped for behind the grating of the room into which andrea had been led he saw while his eyes dilated with surprise the dark and intelligent face of monsieur bertuccio who was also gazing with sad astonishment upon the iron bars the bolted doors and the shadow which moved behind the other grating ah said andrea deeply affected 
"'Good morning, Benedetto,' said Bertuccio, with his deep, hollow voice. "'You! You!' said the young man, looking fearfully around him. "'Do you not recognize me, unhappy child?' "'Silence! Be silent!' said Andrea, who knew the delicate sense of hearing possessed by the walls. "'For heaven's sake, do not speak so loud!' "'You wish to speak with me alone, do you not?' said Bertuccio. "'Oh, yes!' that is well and bertuccio feeling in his pocket signed to a keeper whom he saw through the window of the wicket read he said what is that asked andrea an order to conduct you to a room and to leave you there to talk to me oh cried andrea leaping with joy then he mentally added still my unknown protector i am not forgotten they wish for secrecy since we are to converse in a private room i understand bertuccio has been sent by my protector the keeper spoke for a moment with an official then opened the iron gates and conducted andrea to a room on the first floor the room was whitewashed as is the custom in prisons but it looked quite brilliant to a prisoner though a stove a bed a chair and a table formed the whole of its sumptuous furniture Bertuccio sat down upon the chair. Andrea threw himself upon the bed. The keeper retired. Now, said the steward, what have you to tell me? And you, said Andrea, you speak first. Oh, no, you must have much to tell me, since you have come to seek me. Well, be it so. You have continued your course of villainy. You have robbed, you have assassinated. Well, I should say, if you had me taken to a private room only to tell me this, you might have saved yourself the trouble. I know all these things, but there are some with which, on the contrary, I am not acquainted. Let us talk of those, if you please. Who sent you? Come, come, you are going on quickly, Monsieur Benedetto yes and to the point let us dispense with useless words who sends you no one how did you know i was in prison i recognized you some time since as the insolent dandy who so gracefully mounted his horse in the champs-elysees oh the champs-elysees ah yes we burn as they say at the game of pincette the champs-elysees come let us talk a little about my father who then am i you sir you are my adopted father but it was not you i presume who placed at my disposal one hundred thousand francs which i spent in four or five months it was not you who manufactured an italian gentleman for my father it was not you who introduced me into the world and had me invited to a certain dinner at auteuil which i fancy i am eating at this moment in company with the most distinguished people in paris amongst the rest with a certain procureur whose acquaintance i did very wrong not to cultivate for he would have been very useful to me just now it was not you in fact who bailed me for one or two millions when the fatal discovery of my little secret took place come speak my worthy corsican speak what do you wish me to say i will help you 
you were speaking of the champs-elysees just now worthy foster father well well in the champs-elysees there resides a very rich gentleman at whose house you robbed and murdered did you not i believe i did the count of monte cristo tis you who have named him as monsieur racine says well am i to rush into his arms and strain him to my heart crying my father my father like monsieur pixercourt do not let us jest gravely replied bertuccio and dare not to utter that name again as you have pronounced it bah said andrea a little overcome by the solemnity of bertuccio's manner why not because the person who bears it is too highly favoured by heaven to be the father of such a wretch as you oh these are fine words and there will be fine doings if you do not take care menaces i do not fear them i will say do you think you are engaged with a pygmy like yourself said bertuccio in so calm a tone and with so steadfast a look that andrea was moved to the very soul do you think you have to do with galley slaves or novices in the world benedetto you are fallen into terrible hands they are ready to open for you make use of them do not play with the thunderbolt they have laid aside for a moment but which they can take up again instantly if you attempt to intercept their movements my father i will know who my father is said the obstinate youth i will perish if i must but i will know it what does scandal signify to me what possessions what reputation what pull as beauchamp says have i you great people always lose something by scandal notwithstanding your millions come who is my father i came to tell you ah cried benedetto his eyes sparkling with joy just then the door opened and the jailer addressing himself to bertuccio said excuse me sir but the examining magistrate is waiting for the prisoner and so closes our interview said andrea to the worthy steward i wish the troublesome fellow were at the devil i will return to-morrow said bertuccio good gendarme i am at your service ah sir do leave a few crowns for me at the gate that i may have some things i am in need of it shall be done replied bertuccio andrea extended his hand bertuccio kept his own in his pocket and merely jingled a few pieces of money that's what i mean said andrea endeavouring to smile quite overcome by the strange tranquillity of bertuccio can i be deceived he murmured as he stepped into the oblong and grated vehicle which they call the salad basket never mind we shall see to-morrow then he added turning towards bertuccio to-morrow replied the steward end of chapter 107「ヴァルクモンテクリスト」by Alexandre Dumas This LibriVox recording is in the public domain
Chapter 108 The Judge We remember that the Abbe Boussigny remained alone with Noirtier in the chamber of death, and that the old man and the priest were the sole guardians of the young girl's body. Perhaps it was the Christian exhortations of the Abbe, perhaps his kind charity, perhaps his persuasive words which had restored the courage of Noirtier, for ever since he had conversed with the priest, his violent despair had yielded to a calm resignation which surprised all who knew his excessive affection for Valentine. Monsieur de Villefort had not seen his father since the morning of the death. The whole establishment had been changed. Another valet was engaged for himself, a new servant for Noirtier. Two women had entered Madame de Villefort's service. In fact, everywhere to the concierge and the coachman, new faces were presented to the different masters of the house, thus widening the division which had always existed between the members of the same family. The assizes also were about to begin, and Villefort, shut up in his room, exerted himself with feverish anxiety in drawing up the case against the murderer of Caderousse. This affair, like all those in which the Count of Monte Cristo had interfered, caused a great sensation in Paris. The proofs were certainly not convincing, since they rested upon a few words written by an escaped galley-slave on his deathbed and who might have been actuated by hatred or revenge in accusing his companion. But the mind of the procureur was made up. He felt assured that Benedetto was guilty, and he hoped by his skill in conducting this aggravated case to flatter his self-love, which was about the only vulnerable point left in his frozen heart. The case was therefore prepared owing to the incessant labour of Villefort, who wished it to be the first on the list in the coming assizes. He had been obliged to seclude himself more than ever, to evade the enormous number of applications presented to him for the purpose of obtaining tickets of admission to the court on the day of trial, and then so short a time had elapsed since the death of poor Valentine, and the gloom which overshadowed the house was so recent that no one wondered to see the father so absorbed in his professional duties, which were the only means he had of dissipating his grief. Once only had Villefort seen his father. It was the day after that upon which Bertuccio had paid his second visit to Benedetto, when the latter was to learn his father's name. The magistrate, harassed and fatigued, had descended to the garden of his house, and in a gloomy mood, similar to that in which Tarquin lopped off the tallest poppies, he began knocking off with his cane the long and dying branches of the rose-trees, which, placed along the avenue, seemed like the spectres of the brilliant flowers which had bloomed in the past season. More than once he had reached that part of the garden, where the famous boarded gate stood overlooking the deserted enclosure, always returning by the same path, to begin his walk again, at the same pace and with the same gesture. When he accidentally turned his eyes towards the house, whence he heard the noisy play of his son, who had returned from school to spend the Sunday and Monday with his mother. While doing so, he observed Monsieur Noirtier at one of the open windows, where the old man had been placed that he might enjoy the last rays of the sun, which yet yielded some heat, and was now shining upon the dying flowers and red leaves of the creeper which twined around the balcony. 
the eye of the old man was riveted upon a spot which villefort could scarcely distinguish his glance was so full of hate of ferocity and savage impatience that villefort turned out of the path he had been pursuing to see upon what person this dark look was directed then he saw beneath a thick clump of linden trees which were nearly divested of foliage madame de villefort sitting with a book in her hand the perusal of which she frequently interrupted to smile upon her son or to throw back his elastic ball which he obstinately threw from the drawing-room into the garden villefort became pale he understood the old man's meaning noirtier continued to look at the same object but suddenly his glance was transferred from the wife to the husband and villefort himself had to submit to the searching investigation of eyes which while changing their direction and even their language had lost none of their menacing expression madame de villefort unconscious of the passions that exhausted their fire over her head at that moment held her son's ball and was making signs to him to reclaim it with a kiss edward begged for a long while the maternal kiss probably not offering sufficient recompense for the trouble he must take to obtain it however at length he decided leapt out of the window into a cluster of heliotropes and daisies and ran to his mother his forehead streaming with perspiration madame de villefort wiped his forehead pressed her lips upon it and sent him back with the ball in one hand and some bonbon in the other villefort drawn by an irresistible attraction like that of the bird to the serpent walked towards the house as he approached it noirtier's gaze followed him and his eyes appeared of such a fiery brightness that villefort felt them pierce to the depths of his heart in that earnest look might be read a deep reproach as well as a terrible menace then noirtier raised his eyes to heaven as though to remind his son of a forgotten oath it is well sir replied villefort from below it is well have patience but one day longer what i have said i will do noirtier seemed to be calmed by these words and turned his eyes with indifference to the other side villefort violently unbuttoned his greatcoat which seemed to strangle him and passing his livid hand across his forehead entered his study the night was cold and still the family had all retired but villefort who alone remained up and worked till five o'clock in the morning reviewing the last interrogatories made the night before by the examining magistrates compiling the depositions of the witnesses and putting the finishing stroke to the deed of accusation which was one of the most energetic and best conceived of any he had yet delivered the next day monday was the first sitting of the assizes the morning dawned dull and gloomy and villefort saw the dim gray light shine upon the lines he had traced in red ink the magistrate had slept for a short time while the lamp sent forth its final struggles its flickerings awoke him and he found his fingers as damp and purple as though they had been dipped in blood he opened the window a bright yellow streak crossed the sky and seemed to divide in half the poplars which stood out in black relief on the horizon 
in the clover fields beyond the chestnut trees a lark was mounting up to heaven while pouring out her clear morning song the damps of the dew bathed the head of villefort and refreshed his memory today he said with an effort today the man who holds the blade of justice must strike wherever there is guilt involuntarily his eyes wandered towards the window of noirtier's room where he had seen him the preceding night the curtain was drawn and yet the image of his father was so vivid to his mind that he addressed the closed window as though it had been open and as if through the opening he had beheld the menacing old man yes he murmured yes be satisfied his head dropped upon his chest and in this position he paced his study then he threw himself dressed as he was upon a sofa less to sleep than to rest his limbs cramped with cold and study by degrees everyone awoke villefort from his study heard the successive noises which accompany the life of a house the opening and shutting of doors the ringing of madame de villefort's bell to summon the waiting-maid mingled with the first shouts of the child who rose full of the enjoyment of his age villefort also rang his new valet brought him the papers and with them a cup of chocolate what are you bringing me said he a cup of chocolate i did not ask for it who has paid me this attention my mistress sir she said you would have to speak a great deal in the murder case and that you should take something to keep up your strength and the valet placed the cup on the table nearest to the sofa which was like all the rest covered with papers the valet then left the room villefort looked for an instant with a gloomy expression then suddenly taking it up with a nervous motion he swallowed its contents at one draught it might have been thought that he hoped the beverage would be mortal and that he sought for death to deliver him from a duty which he would rather die than fulfill he then rose and paced his room with a smile it would have been terrible to witness the chocolate was inoffensive for monsieur de villefort felt no effects the breakfast hour arrived but monsieur de villefort was not at table the valet re-entered madame de villefort wishes to remind you sir he said that eleven o'clock has just struck and that the trial commences at twelve well said villefort what then madame de villefort is dressed she is quite ready and wishes to know if she is to accompany you sir where to to the palais what to do my mistress wishes much to be present at the trial ah said villefort with a startling accent does she wish that the man drew back and said if you wish to go alone sir i will go and tell my mistress villefort remained silent for a moment and dented his pale cheeks with his nails tell your mistress he at length answered that i wish to speak to her and i beg she will wait for me in her own room yes sir then come to dress and shave me directly sir the valet reappeared almost instantly and having shaved his master assisted him to dress entirely in black when he had finished he said 
My mistress said she should expect you, sir, as soon as you had finished dressing. I am going to her. And Villefort, with his papers under his arm and hat in hand, directed his steps toward the apartment of his wife. At the door he paused for a moment to wipe his damp, pale brow. He then entered the room. Madame de Villefort was sitting on an ottoman, and impatiently turning over the leaves of some newspapers and pamphlets, which young Edward, by way of amusing himself, was tearing to pieces before his mother could finish reading them. She was dressed to go out. Her bonnet was placed beside her on a chair, and her gloves were on her hands. "'Ah, here you are, monsieur,' she said in her naturally calm voice. "'But how pale you are! Have you been working all night?' why did you not come down to breakfast well will you take me or shall i take edward madame de villefort had multiplied her questions in order to gain one answer but to all her inquiries monsieur de villefort remained mute and cold as a statue edward said villefort fixing an imperious glance on the child go and play in the drawing-room my dear i wish to speak to your mamma Madame de Villefort shuddered at the sight of that cold countenance, that resolute tone, and the awfully strange preliminaries. Edward raised his head, looked at his mother, and then, finding that she did not confirm the order, began cutting off the heads of his leaden soldiers. "'Edward!' cried Monsieur de Villefort, so harshly that the child started up from the floor. "'Do you hear me? Go!' The child, unaccustomed to such treatment, arose pale and trembling. It would be difficult to say whether his emotion were caused by fear or passion. His father went up to him, took him in his arms, and kissed his forehead. "'Go,' he said. "'Go, my child.' Edward ran out. Monsieur de Villefort went to the door, which he closed behind the child, and bolted. "'Dear me,' said the young woman, endeavouring to read her husband's inmost thoughts while a smile passed over her countenance, which froze the impassibility of Villefort. "'What is the matter?' "'Madame, where do you keep the poison you generally use?' said the magistrate, without any introduction, placing himself between his wife and the door. Madame de Villefort must have experienced something of the sensation of a bird which, looking up, sees the murderous trap closing over its head. A hoarse, broken tone, which was neither a cry nor a sigh, escaped from her while she became deadly pale. Monsieur, she said, I, I do not understand you. And in her first paroxysm of terror, she had raised herself from the sofa. In the next, stronger, very likely than the other, she fell down again on the cushions. I asked you, continued Villefort, in a perfectly calm tone, where you conceal the poison by the aid of which you have killed my father-in-law, Monsieur de Saint-Méran, my mother-in-law, Madame de Saint-Méran, Barrois, and my daughter, Valentine. Ah, oh, sir, exclaimed Madame de Villefort, clasping her hands, what do you say? It is not for you to interrogate, but to answer. Is it to the judge or to the husband? stammered Madame de Villefort. To the judge. To the judge, madame. It was terrible to behold the frightful pallor of that woman, the anguish of her look, the trembling of her whole frame. 
ah sir she muttered ah sir and this was all you do not answer madame exclaimed the terrible interrogator then he added with a smile yet more terrible than his anger it is true then you do not deny it she moved forward and you cannot deny it added villefort extending his hand towards her as though to seize her in the name of justice you have accomplished these different crimes with impudent address but which could only deceive those whose affections for you blinded them since the death of madame de saint meron i have known that a poisoner lived in my house monsieur d'avrigny warned me of it after the death of barrois my suspicions were directed towards an angel those suspicions which even when there is no crime are always alive in my heart but after the death of valentine there has been no doubt in my mind madame and not only in mine but in those of others thus your crime known by two persons suspected by many will soon become public and as i told you just now you no longer speak to the husband but to the judge the young woman hid her face in her hands oh sir she stammered i beseech you do not believe appearances are you then a coward cried villefort in a contemptuous voice but i have always observed that poisoners were cowards can you be a coward you who have the courage to witness the death of two old men and a young girl murdered by you sir sir can you be a coward continued villefort with increasing excitement you who could count one by one the minutes of four death agonies you who have arranged your infernal plans and removed the beverages with a talent and precision almost miraculous have you then who have calculated everything with such nicety have you forgotten to calculate one thing i mean where the revelation of your crimes will lead you to oh it is impossible you must have saved some surer more subtle and deadly poison than any other that you might escape the punishment that you deserve you have done this i hope so at least madame de villefort stretched out her hands and fell on her knees i understand he said you confess but a confession made to the judges a confession made at the last moment extorted when the crime cannot be denied diminishes not the punishment inflicted on the guilty the punishment exclaimed madame de villefort the punishment monsieur twice you have pronounced that word certainly did you hope to escape it because you are four times guilty did you think the punishment would be withheld because you are the wife of him who pronounces it no madame no the scaffold awaits the poisoner whoever she may be unless as i just said the poisoner has taken the precaution of keeping for herself a few drops of her deadliest potion madame de villefort uttered a wild cry and a hideous and uncontrollable terror spread over her distorted features oh 
do not fear the scaffold madame said the magistrate i will not dishonor you since that would be dishonor to myself no if you have heard me distinctly you will understand that you are not to die on the scaffold no i i do not understand what do you mean stammered the unhappy woman completely overwhelmed i mean that the wife of the first magistrate in the capital shall not by her infamy soil an unblemished name that she shall not with one blow dishonor her husband and her child no no oh no well madame it will be a laudable action on your part and i will thank you for it you will thank me for what for what you have just said what did i say oh my brain whirls i no longer understand anything oh my god my god and she rose with her hair dishevelled and her lips foaming have you answered the question i put to you on entering the room where do you keep the poison you generally use madame madame de villefort raised her arms to heaven and convulsively struck one hand against the other no no she vociferated no you cannot wish that what i do not wish madame is that you should perish on the scaffold do you understand asked villefort oh mercy mercy monsieur what i require is that justice be done i am on the earth to punish madame he added with a flaming glance any other woman were the queen herself i would send to the executioner but to you i shall be merciful to you i will say have you not madame put aside some of the surest deadliest most speedy poison oh pardon me sir let me live she is cowardly said villefort reflect that i am your wife you are a poisoner in the name of heaven no in the name of the love you once bore me no no in the name of our child oh for the sake of our child let me live no no i tell you one day if i allow you to live you will perhaps kill him as you have the others i i kill my boy cried the distracted mother rushing toward villefort i kill my son <laughs> and a frightful demonic laugh finished the sentence which was lost in a hoarse rattle madame de villefort fell at her husband's feet he approached her think of it madame he said if on my return justice has not been satisfied i will denounce you with my own mouth and arrest you with my own hands she listened panting overwhelmed crushed her eye alone lived and glared horribly do you understand me he said i am going down there to pronounce the sentence of death against a murderer if i find you alive on my return you shall sleep tonight in the conciergerie madame de villefort sighed 
Her nerves gave way, and she sunk on the carpet. The king's attorney seemed to experience a sensation of pity. He looked upon her less severely, and, bowing to her, said slowly, Farewell, madame. Farewell. That farewell struck Madame de Villefort like the executioner's knife. She fainted. The procureur went out after having double-locked the door. End of chapter 108「Chapter 109 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 109 The Assizes. The Benedetto affair, as it was called at the Palais, and by people in general, had produced a tremendous sensation. Frequenting the Café de Paris, the Boulevard de Gand, and the Bois de Boulogne during his brief career of splendor, the false Cavalcanti had formed a host of acquaintances. The papers had related his various adventures, both as a man of fashion and the galley-slave, and as everyone who had been personally acquainted with Prince Andrea Cavalcanti experienced a lively curiosity in his fate, they all determined to spare no trouble in endeavouring to witness the trial of Monsieur Benedetto for the murder of his comrade in chains. In the eyes of many, Benedetto appeared if not a victim to, at least an instance of the fallibility of the law. Monsieur Cavalcanti, his father, had been seen in Paris, and it was expected that he would reappear to claim the illustrious outcast. Many, also, who were not aware of the circumstances attending his withdrawal from Paris, were struck with the worthy appearance, the gentlemanly bearing, and the knowledge of the world displayed by the old patrician, who certainly played the nobleman very well, so long as he said nothing, and made no arithmetical calculations. As for the accused himself, many remembered him as being so amiable, so handsome, and so liberal, that they chose to think him the victim of some conspiracy, since in this world large fortunes frequently excite the malevolence and jealousy of some unknown enemy. Every one, therefore, ran to the court, some to witness the sight, others to comment upon it. From seven o'clock in the morning a crowd was stationed at the iron gates, and an hour before the trial commenced the hall was full of the privileged. Before the entrance of the magistrates, and indeed frequently afterwards, a court of justice, on days when some special trial is to take place, resembles a drawing-room where many persons recognize each other and converse if they can do so without losing their seats or if they're separated by too great a number of lawyers communicate by signs it was one of the magnificent autumn days which made amends for a short summer the clouds which monsieur de villefort had perceived at sunrise had all disappeared as if by magic and one of the softest and most brilliant days of september shone forth in all its splendour. Beauchamp, one of the kings of the press, and therefore claiming the right of a throne everywhere, was eyeing everybody through his monocle. He perceived Chateaurenaud and de Bray, who had just gained the good graces of a sergeant-at-arms, and who had persuaded the latter to let them stand before, instead of behind him, as they ought to have done. 
the worthy sergeant had recognized the minister's secretary and the millionaire and by the way of paying extra attention to his noble neighbors promised to keep their places while they paid a visit to beauchamp well said beauchamp we shall see our friend yes indeed replied debray that worthy prince deuce take those italian princes a man too who could boast of dante for a genealogist and could reckon back to the divine comedy a nobility of the rope said chateau renaud phlegmatically he will be condemned will he not asked debray of beauchamp my dear fellow i think we should ask you that question you know such news much better than we do did you see the president at the minister's last night yes what did he say something which will surprise you oh make haste and tell me then it is a long time since that has happened well he told me that benedetto who is considered a serpent of subtlety and a giant of cunning is really but a very commonplace silly rascal and altogether unworthy of the experiments that will be made on his phrenological organs after his death bah said beauchamp he played the prince very well yes for you who detest those unhappy princes beauchamp and are always delighted to find fault with them but not for me who discover a gentleman by instinct and who sent out an aristocratic family like a very bloodhound of heraldry then you have never believed in the principality yes in the principality but not in the prince not so bad said beauchamp still i assure you he passed very well with many people i saw him at the minister's house ah oh, yes said chateau renaud the idea of thinking ministers understand anything about princes <laughs> there is something in what you have just said said beauchamp laughing but said debray to beauchamp if i spoke to the president you must have been with the procureur it was an impossibility for the last week monsieur de villefort has secluded himself it is natural enough this strange chain of domestic afflictions followed by the no less strange death of his daughter strange what do you mean beauchamp oh yes do you pretend that all this has been unobserved at the minister's said beauchamp placing his eyeglass in his eye where he tried to make it remain my dear sir said chateau renaud allow me to tell you that you do not understand that maneuver with the eyeglass half so well as debray give him a lesson debray stay said beauchamp surely i am not deceived what is it it is she whom do you mean they said she had left mademoiselle eugenie said chateau renaud has she returned no but her mother madame danglars nonsense impossible said chateau renaud only ten days after the flight of her daughter and three days from the bankruptcy of her husband debray colored slightly and followed with his eyes the direction of beauchamp's glance come he said it is only a veiled lady some foreign princess perhaps the mother of cavalcanti but you are just speaking on a very interesting topic beauchamp i 
yes you were telling us about the extraordinary death of valentine ah yes so i was but how is it that madame de villefort is not here poor dear woman said debray she is in no doubt occupied in distilling balm for the hospitals or in making cosmetics for herself or friends do you know she spends two or three thousand crowns a year in this amusement but i wonder she is not here i should have been pleased to see her for i like her very much and i hate her said chateau renaud why i do not know why do we love why do we hate i detest her from antipathy or rather by instinct perhaps so but to return to what you were saying beauchamp well do you know why they die so multitudinously at monsieur de villefort's multitudinously is good said chateau renaud my good fellow you'll find the word in saint simon but the thing itself is at monsieur de villefort's but let's get back to the subject talking of that said debray madame was making inquiries about that house which for the last three months has been hung with black who is madame asked chateau renaud the minister's wife pardieu oh your pardon i never visit ministers i leave that to the princes really you were only before sparkling but now you are brilliant take compassion on us or like jupiter you will wither us up i will not speak again said chateau renaud pray have compassion upon me and do not take up every word i say come let us endeavour to get to the end of our story beauchamp i told you that yesterday madame made inquiries of me upon the subject enlighten me and i will then communicate my information to her well gentlemen the reason people die so multitudinously i like the word at monsieur de villefort's is that there is an assassin in the house the two young men shuddered for the same idea had more than once occurred to them and who is the assassin they asked together young edward a burst of laughter from the auditors did not in the least disconcert the speaker who continued yes gentlemen edward the infant phenomenon who is quite an adept in the art of killing you are jesting not at all i yesterday engaged a servant who had just left monsieur de villefort i intend sending him away to-morrow for he eats so enormously to make up for the fast imposed upon him by his terror in that house well now listen we are listening it appears the dear child has obtained possession of a bottle containing some drug which he every now and then uses against those who have displeased him first monsieur and madame de saint meron incurred his displeasure so he poured out three drops of this elixir three drops were sufficient then followed barrois the old servant of monsieur noirtier who sometimes rebuffed this little wretch he therefore received the same quantity of the elixir the same happened to valentine of whom he was jealous he gave her the same dose as the others and all was over for her as well as the rest why what nonsense are you telling us said chateau renaud yes it is an extraordinary story said beauchamp is it not 
"'It is absurd,' said de Bray. "'Ah,' said Beauchamp, "'you doubt me. "'Well, you can ask my servant, "'or rather him who will no longer be my servant to-morrow. "'It was the talk of the house. "'And this elixir, where is it? "'What is it?' the child conceals it but where did he find it in his mother's laboratory does his mother then keep poisons in her laboratory how can i tell you are questioning me like a king's attorney i only repeat what i have been told and like my informant i can do no more the poor devil would eat nothing from fear it is incredible no my dear fellow it is not at all incredible you saw the child pass through the rue richelieu last year who amused himself with killing his brothers and sisters by sticking pins in their ears while they slept the generation who follow us are very precocious come beauchamp said chateau renaud i will bet anything you do not believe a word of all you have been telling us i do not see the count of monte cristo here he is worn out said debray besides he could not well appear in public since he has been the dupe of the cavalcanti who it appears presented themselves to him with false letters of credit and cheated him out of one hundred thousand francs upon the hypothesis of this principality by the way monsieur de chateaurenaud asked beauchamp how is morel ma foi i've called him three times without once seeing him still his sister did not seem uneasy and told me that though she had not seen him for two or three days she was sure he was well ah now i think of it the count of monte cristo cannot appear in the hall said beauchamp why not because he is an actor in the drama has he assassinated anyone then no on the contrary they wish to assassinate him you know that it was in leaving his house that monsieur de caderousse was murdered by his friend benedetto you know that the famous waistcoat was found in his house containing the letter which stopped the signature of the marriage contract do you see the waistcoat there it is all blood-stained on the desk as a testimony of the crime ah very good hush gentlemen here is the court let us go back to our places a noise was heard in the hall the sergeant called his two patrons with an energetic Hum! and the doorkeeper appearing called out with that shrill voice peculiar to his order ever since the days of beaumarchais the court gentlemen end of chapter 109《Chapter 110 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 110 The Indictment. The judges took their places in the midst of the most profound silence. The jury took their seats. Monsieur de Villefort, the object of unusual attention, and we had almost said of general admiration, sat in the armchair and cast a tranquil glance around him everyone looked with astonishment on that grave and severe face whose calm expression personal griefs had been unable to disturb 
and the aspect of a man who was a stranger to all human emotions excited something very like terror gendarme said the president lead in the accused at these words the public attention became more intense and all eyes were turned towards the door through which benedetto was to enter the door soon opened and the accused appeared the same impression was experienced by all present and no one was deceived by the expression of his countenance his features bore no sign of that deep emotion which stops the beating of the heart and blanches the cheek his hands gracefully placed one upon his hat the other in the opening of his white waistcoat were not at all tremulous his eye was calm and even brilliant scarcely had he entered the hall when he glanced at the whole body of magistrates and assistants his eye rested longer on the president and still more so on the king's attorney by the side of andrea was stationed the lawyer who was to conduct his defence and who had been appointed by the court for andrea disdained to pay any attention to those details to which he appeared to attach no importance the lawyer was a young man with light hair whose face expressed a hundred times more emotion than that which characterized the prisoner the president called for the indictment revised as we know by the clever and implacable pen of villefort during the reading of this which was long the public attention was continually drawn towards andrea who bore the inspection with spartan unconcern villefort had never been so concise and eloquent the crime was depicted in the most vivid colors the former life of the prisoner his transformation a review of his life from the earliest period was set forth with all the talent that a knowledge of human life could furnish to a mind like that of the procureur benedetto was thus forever condemned in public opinion before the sentence of the law could be pronounced andrea paid no attention to the successive charges which were brought against him Monsieur de villefort who examined him attentively and who no doubt practised upon him all the psychological studies he was accustomed to use in vain endeavoured to make him lower his eyes notwithstanding the depth and profundity of his gaze at length the reading of the indictment was ended accused said the president your name and surname andrea arose excuse me mr president he said in a clear voice but i see you are going to adopt a course of questions through which i cannot follow you i have an idea which i will explain by and by of making an exception to the usual form of accusation allow me then if you please to answer in different order or i will not do so at all the astonished president looked at the jury who in turn looked at villefort the whole assembly manifested great surprise but andrea appeared quite unmoved your age said the president you will answer that question i will answer that question as well as the rest mr president but in its turn your age repeated the president i am twenty-one years old or rather i shall be in a few days as i was born the night of the twenty-seventh of september eighteen seventeen monsieur de villefort who was busy taking down some notes raised his head at the mention of this date where were you born continued the president at auteuil near paris 
Monsieur de Villefort a second time raised his head, looked at Benedetto as if he had been gazing at the head of Medusa, and became livid. As for Benedetto, he gracefully wiped his lips with a fine cambric pocket-handkerchief. "'Your profession?' First, I was a forger,' answered Andrea as calmly as possible. "'Then I became a thief, and lately have become an assassin.' A murmur or rather storm of indignation burst from all parts of the assembly. The judges themselves appeared to be stupefied, and the jury manifested tokens of disgust for cynicism so unexpected in a man of fashion. Monsieur de Villefort pressed his hand upon his brow, which at first pale had become red and burning. Then he suddenly arose and looked around as though he had lost his senses. He wanted air. "'Are you looking for anything, Monsieur Procureur?' asked Benedetto, with his most ingratiating smile. Monsieur de Villefort answered nothing, but sat, or rather threw himself down again upon his chair. "'And now, prisoner, you will consent to tell your name,' said the President. "'The brutal affectation with which you have enumerated and classified your crimes calls for a severe reprimand on the part of the court, both in the name of morality and for the respect due to humanity. You appear to consider this a point of honour, and it may be for this reason that you have delayed acknowledging your name. You wished it to be preceded by all these titles. It is quite wonderful, Mr. President, how entirely you have read my thoughts said benedetto in his softest voice and most polite manner this is indeed the reason why i begged you to alter the order of the questions the public astonishment had reached its height there was no longer any deceit or bravado in the manner of the accused the audience felt that a startling revelation was to follow this ominous prelude well said the president your name i cannot tell you my name since I do not know it, but I know my father's, and can tell it to you. A painful giddiness overwhelmed Villefort. Great drops of acrid sweat fell from his face upon the papers which he held in his convulsed hand. "'Repeat your father's name,' said the President. Not a whisper, not a breath was heard in that vast assembly. Everyone waited anxiously. "'My father is King's attorney,' replied Andrea calmly. "'King's attorney?' said the President, stupefied, and without noticing the agitation which spread over the face of Monsieur de Villefort. "'King's attorney?' "'Yes, and if you wish to know his name, I will tell you it. He is named Villefort.' The explosion, which had been so long restrained from a feeling of respect to the court of justice, now burst forth like thunder from the breasts of all present. The court itself did not seek to restrain the feelings of the audience. The exclamations, the insults addressed to Benedetto, who remained perfectly unconcerned, the energetic gestures, the movement of the gendarme, the sneers of the scum of the crowd always sure to rise to the surface in case of any disturbance all this lasted five minutes before the doorkeepers and magistrates were able to restore silence 
in the midst of this tumult the voice of the president was heard to exclaim are you playing with justice accused and do you dare set your fellow citizens an example of disorder which even these times has never been equalled several persons hurried up to monsieur de villefort who sat half bowed over in his chair offering him consolation encouragement and protestations of zeal and sympathy order was re-established in the hall except that a few people still moved about and whispered to one another a lady it was said had just fainted they had supplied her with a smelling bottle and she had recovered during the scene of tumult andrea had turned his smiling face towards the assembly then leaning with one hand on the oaken rail of the dock in the most graceful attitude possible he said gentlemen i assure you i had no idea of insulting the court or of making a useless disturbance in the presence of this honourable assembly they ask my age i tell it they ask where i was born i answer they ask my name i cannot give it since my parents abandoned me but though i cannot give my own name not possessing one i can tell them my father's now i repeat my father is named monsieur de villefort and i am ready to prove it there was an energy a conviction and a sincerity in the manner of the young man which silenced the tumult all eyes were turned for a moment towards the procureur who sat as motionless as though a thunderbolt had changed him into a corpse gentlemen said andrea commanding silence by his voice and manner i owe you the proofs and explanations of what i have said but said the irritated president you called yourself benedetto declared yourself an orphan and claimed corsica as your country i said anything i pleased in order that the solemn declaration i have just made should not be withheld which otherwise would certainly have been the case i now repeat that i was born at auteuil on the night of the twenty seventh of september eighteen seventeen and that i am the son of the procureur monsieur de villefort do you wish for any further details i will give them i was born in number twenty eight rue de la fontaine in a room hung with red damask my father took me in his arms telling my mother i was dead wrapped me in a napkin marked with an h and an n and carried me into a garden where he buried me alive a shudder ran through the assembly when they saw that the confidence of the prisoner increased in proportion to the terror of monsieur de villefort but how have you become acquainted with all these details asked the president i will tell you mr president a man who had sworn vengeance against my father and had long watched his opportunity to kill him had introduced himself that night into the garden in which my father buried me he was concealed in a thicket he saw my father bury something in the ground and stabbed him then thinking the deposit might contain some treasure he turned up the ground and found me still living the man carried me to the foundling asylum where i was registered under the number thirty-seven three months afterwards a woman travelling from rogliano to paris to patch me and having claimed me as her son carried me away thus you see though born in paris 
I was brought up in Corsica. There was a moment's silence, during which one could have fancied the hall empty, so profound was the stillness. Proceed, said the President. Certainly I might have lived happily amongst those good people who adored me, but my perverse disposition prevailed over the virtues which my adopted mother endeavoured to instil into my heart. I increased in wickedness till I committed crime. One day, when I cursed Providence for making me so wicked and ordaining me to such a fate, my adopted father said to me, "'Do not blaspheme, unhappy child.' the crime is that of your father not yours of your father who consigned you to hell if you died and to misery if a miracle preserved you alive after that i ceased to blaspheme but i cursed my father that is why i have uttered the words for which you blame me that is why i have filled this whole assembly with horror i have committed an additional crime punish me but if you will allow that ever since the day of my birth my fate has been sad bitter and lamentable then pity me but your mother asked the president my mother thought me dead she is not guilty i did not even wish to know her name nor do i know it just then a piercing cry ending in a sob burst from the centre of the crowd who encircled the lady who had before fainted and who now fell into a violent fit of hysterics she was carried out of the hall the thick veil which concealed her face dropped off and madame d'anglars was recognized notwithstanding his shattered nerves the ringing sensation in his ears and the madness which turned his brain villefort rose as he perceived her the proofs the proofs said the president remember this tissue of horrors must be supported by the clearest proofs the proofs said benedetto laughing <laughs> do you want the proofs yes well then look at monsieur de villefort and then ask me for proofs everyone turned towards the procureur who unable to bear the universal gaze now riveted on him alone advanced staggering into the midst of the tribunal with his hair dishevelled and his face indented with the mark of his nails the whole assembly uttered a long murmur of astonishment father said benedetto i am asked for proofs do you wish me to give them no no it it is useless stammered monsieur de villefort in a hoarse voice no it is useless how useless cried the president what do you mean i mean that i feel it impossible to struggle against this deadly weight which crushes me gentlemen i know i am in the hands of an avenging god we need no proofs everything relating to this young man is true a dull gloomy silence like that which precedes some awful phenomenon of nature pervaded the assembly who shuddered in dismay what monsieur de villefort cried the president do you yield to an hallucination what are you no longer in possession of your senses this strange unexpected 
terrible accusation has disordered your reason. Come, recover. The procureur dropped his head. His teeth chattered like those of a man under a violent attack of fever, and yet he was deadly pale. I am in possession of all my senses, sir, he said. My body alone suffers, as you may suppose. I acknowledge myself guilty of all the young man has brought against me, and from this hour hold myself under the authority of the procureur who will succeed me. And as he spoke these words with a hoarse, choking voice, he staggered towards the door, which was mechanically opened by a doorkeeper. The whole assembly were dumb with astonishment at the revelation and confession which had produced a catastrophe so different from that which had been expected during the last fortnight by the Parisian world. "'Well,' said Beauchamp, "'let them now say that drama is unnatural.' "'Ma foi,' said Chateau Renaud, "'I would rather end my career like Monsieur de Morcerf. A pistol-shot seems quite delightful compared with this catastrophe.' "'And moreover it kills,' said Beauchamp. "'And to think I had an idea of marrying his daughter,' said Debray. "'She did well to die, poor girl.' "'The sitting is adjourned, gentlemen,' said the President. "'Fresh inquiries will be made, and the case will be tried next session by another magistrate.' As for Andrea, who was calm and more interesting than ever, he left the hall, escorted by gendarme, who involuntarily paid him some attention. "'Well, what do you think of this, my fine fellow?' asked Debray of the sergeant-at-arms, slipping a louis into his hand. "'There will be extenuating circumstance,' he replied. End of chapter 110